Uh, I'm going to jump right into Hosea, um, and uh, we're, we're picking up on our, our third out of four weeks of teaching. So we're coming towards our conclusion. Um, and to start today, I actually want to share a, just kind of a brief story and ask you a question. Here's my, my question. Have you ever experienced, maybe in your family or someone else's family or, or a room, where one person's emotions shape the entire atmosphere of that gathering? Have you ever felt that? One person, whether they're having a good day, bad day, they shape the entire atmosphere of the people around them. Um, I know, <laughs> I'm seeing a lot of people like, yeah. Um, so I know one family um, in particular uh, who... That is very much the case. In this family, it is the dad who, when the dad's having a good day, the whole family is at ease. When the dad's having a bad day, the whole family is on walking on eggshells. Um, and I am hesitant to psychoanalyze them and come to all the sorts of conclusions, but as I've experienced this family, uh, there's a couple things that I've observed. Um, one is that uh, the dad has a very strong need to be needed. And so he will insert himself into the lives of uh, his spouse and his children in ways that are unnecessary and unhelpful. That that also has a very strong need to be the provider and the protector of the family. And the way that that can mean is that when one of the, the siblings or the spouse wants to go do something, the dad can shut them down very quickly in the name of protection or caution. But then when that same dad needs them to go do something, he'll ask them to go into another situation, possibly even more vulnerable than the one they wanted. Does that make sense? Um, <clears throat> essentially what is happening is the, the needs of this dad have created an environment where the whole family is constantly looking to him for cues. Are we okay or are we not okay? And the, the family is constantly living in this situation of, am I more safe like this or are we more safe like this? Like, what, how do I exist safely? Can I trust you right now? And that question is constantly being asked. And I've seen the effect that that's had on the spouse and the kids in that environment. Um, and so to explain this, again, without trying to psychoanalyze this one man, uh, I think it's helpful to think of a thermostat. Um, in a, some of us are used to being emotionally cold, right? We're used to that. I'm actually more comfortable when we're a little bit at arm's distance. When we start getting too mushy-gushy, I freak out. So I like to keep things cool, stable, predictable. That's my comfort zone. Others of us like things to be hot. We like when there's just intimacy and exchange, and I want to know your emotions, and you need to know my emotions. And as soon as we're cooling off, I freak out. Why are you walking away from me? Why are you running away? I want to be like this face-to-face -face all the time, right? And so it's helpful to think of a thermostat in that way. <clears throat> um, my wife and I, especially on the hot side of the spectrum, there's this old 70s song that we, we like to joke about. Uh, it goes, I want you to want me. I need you to need me. I beg you to beg me. I'd love for you to love me. My wife and I are familiar with this dynamic because that's our dynamic. My wife leans on the hotter end of the spectrum. Um, and, and to be clear, hot doesn't mean like angry all the time, right? Hot means like uh, in intensity and frequency and sharing of emotions. And cold means like distance. So my wife leans hot. She, if, as, when we're hot and warm and, and back and forth, it's great. But as soon as we start to cool down, she gets uncomfortable. I live on the other end of the spectrum. I like everything to be stable. And I don't like to feel angry. And I don't like to feel sad. So no, honey, I'm totally fine. Why don't we just talk later? 
right? That's my normal because I tend to be comfortable in emotional coldness. She tends to be comfortable in emotional warmth. Now, <clears throat> both overly cold and overly hot um, emotional thermostats are actually motivated by lack of trust. The cold one's probably more easy to understand, right? I don't totally trust you, so I feel safer when you're at arm's reach. I'm not sure what you're gonna do. I don't totally trust you, so let's just cool it down a little bit. Emotionally hot, on the other hand, is motivated by the same thing. It's actually lack of trust. If you don't need me, or I can't control you, or I don't know what you're thinking, I don't know what you're gonna do. Will you leave me? Will you abandon me? Will you turn on me? I need to be engaged in your world every point, whether it's through need or control, because I'm not sure what you're gonna do if I don't understand you and you don't understand me. Now, what happens then, if both of those are when you're motivated by mistrust, what happens when your relational thermostat is primarily motivated by trust? What, is, what does it look like to live at a cool 72 degrees? looks like kind of a mixture of both, right? This is a bit of a spectrum. It means there's some health in emotional coolness, right? There's a stability. There's, I'm, I'm able to exist on my own. I don't need to force myself on you, I'm okay. But I also wanna move toward you with warmth. I need you to know what I'm thinking. Maybe it's pain, maybe it's joy, maybe it's love, right? And same, same thing, the, the hot has a, a positive to it, right? I wanna share myself with you, I wanna know you. How do we reciprocate love and affection? And so cool 72 degrees looks something like, I'm my own person. I have my own feelings, but I would love to share them with you. And if you turn me down, I'll, I'll be okay. I'm my own person, but also I'm eager. I'm leaning into love and affection and the sharing of my world with your word, I, world. I want to know you. Now, <clears throat> we tend to have one thermostat setting that we developed early in life, and we tend to apply that thermostat setting to most, if not all, of our relationships. Obviously, there's some people you have less trust for or more trust for, and so that changes a little bit, but we tend to have one thermostat setting. And we apply that to people as well as how we interact with God. And so my question for us is kind of twofold. Um, on the first is, what's your default emotional thermostat? And how might that affect how you relate with God? And two, what is God's emotional thermostat? And does that affect how you trust him? Because if God is cold and he defaults to distant, how does that make you feel? When whenever something's wrong, he goes like this. Or the opposite, God who, in, in order to feel safe, he's just like swarming on you and swallowing you and needing to be needed and controlling you, right? So what is God's emotional thermostat? <clears throat> Now, we right now are moving through Hosea, and we're on three out of four weeks. Uh, the, and we're basing our whole series on Hosea through the four movements of Hosea, the man's life. This is chapters one through three in Hosea. In movement one, God asks Hosea to take a wife named Gomer, knowing that she'll be unfaithful to him. And the big idea there is that God views his relationship with his people as a marriage. He's loyal to them. He loves them. He takes that seriously. In movement two is that Gomer, Hosea's wife, and the people of Israel are unfaithful. And the big idea with that was that our sin, our wanderingness, is the equivalent of marital infidelity. And that's actually a helpful image because now we can get to the root of the problem. Now, 
Skipping ahead to next week will be the fourth movement, which is where God moves forward and Hosea moves forward with action. Hosea goes and redeems his wife and brings her back into his home. God moves towards his people and brings them home. And today is movement three. It's this in-between space. What's the in-between emotional reality between you've been unfaithful to me and I'm going to do something about it? Today is all about what's that in-between space? And as we're going to see in Hosea, there's lots of ups and downs. There's frustration, there's anger, there's hurt. There's also compassion and loyalty and love and courage. And as we read Hosea, it's possible to fall into one of two ditches when we view God. We can look at this story and say, well, God's just too cold. Or we can say, God's just too hot. He's unpredictable. He's needy and controlling. And so, what we're going through today is to look at what is his thermostat, what is the contents of his heart. And here's my main point, if I could summarize it in two sentences for all of today. My main point is that when our relationship with God is damaged, he leans into relationship by sharing his internal world with us. And this creates healing and reconciliation. When our relationship is damaged, God does not do this. But he also doesn't do this. God does this thing where he leans into our relationship by being independent, sharing of himself, honestly saying, here's the contents of my heart. Would you let me pursue you? So my big, the, the reason I'm saying this is through all of Hosea, God seems to be working really, really hard to let us peek behind the curtain. He's wanting to demonstrate what is in his mind and heart, his motivations, why he's frustrated, why he's hurt. He's asking us to understand him through the entirety of Hosea. That is literally what it is. It's a letter saying, understand me. Follow me, be faithful to me. Here's what's behind my curtain. And as we hear his internal world in Hosea, we'll realize that he's fair and honest and compassionate and trustworthy. He's not too cold meaning he shares himself rather than distancing himself. And he's also not too hot to the point of control and indulgence. So um, I just want to point out, because some of us might be like, wow, really, Trevor? I just want to point out that, one, this is not lowering God to an overly anthropomorphized deity that we've made in our image. We're not bringing God down to our level. I would argue we're made in the image of God and the infinite creator of the universe, as well as our emotional realities, probably loves more fully than we do. He probably hurts more painfully than we do. He probably is more loyal than we are. And so his emotional reality, I would say, is more real, more big, more vast than ours, not that we're bringing him down to our level. And it's entirely possible to hold a doctrinal truths that says God is omniscient and God is sovereign, 100% all day long, no doubt. And I'm honoring the way he presents himself in his scriptures. He's given us his scriptures so we will understand him. Now, uh, here's what we're going to do for today. Uh, we're going to look at two texts, Hosea chapter 1 and Hosea chapter 11. And our main filter that we're going to be asking is, what is God feeling? And then how does he extend himself toward us? What is he feeling and how does he extend himself toward us? And chapter one is about the illegitimate children of Hosea. And we're going to look at how God takes a broken situation and promises to restore it. 
And then chapter 11, we're going to hone in on the fact that one, God does have an internal emotional world that he's sharing. And two, he's sharing it with us. And the bedrock of it is loyalty and faithfulness. That is the bedrock of his internal world. Now, two things you'll notice about today, or excuse me, one thing you'll notice is that the, the main image or metaphor that we've been using up till this point is the metaphor of marriage and lover, that God is pursuing his people as though he were married to them. Today is going to be a little bit different where God's going to choose to use a different image. He's using the image of father and child, both in Hosea's life as well as in chapter 11. Now, uh, chapter one, here's just some quick intro. <clears throat> These children, there's three of them. There's two boys and one girl, and they're the result of Gomer's unfaithfulness. And God is using their names as a message to his people. <clears throat> and the way that this is laid out is God uh, asks Hosea to give them names as a message of consequence. And then at the end, he changes their names as a message of promise and hope. And we're going to jump in and read this now in Hosea chapter 1. If you'd like to read along, you can either follow in your Bibles. I'm choosing to use the New Living Translation. There's a QR code on the screen. If you want to follow in my same translation, you can uh, snap that on your phone and then follow along. This is Hosea chapter 1, uh, verse 2, through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, God said to him, Go and marry a prostitute, so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution. And this will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea married Gomer, the daughter of Dibleem, and she became pregnant and gave Hosea a son. And the Lord said, name the child Jezreel, which means to scatter. For I'm about to punish King Jehu's dynasty to avenge the murders that he committed at Jezreel. In fact, I will bring an end to Israel's independence. I will break its military power in the Jezreel Valley. That's <coughs> the first son. <clears throat> Keep going. Soon Gomer became pregnant again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, Name your daughter Lo Ruhamah, which means not loved or no mercy. For I will no longer show love or mercy to the people of Israel or forgive them, but I will show love to the people of Judah and I will free them from their enemies, not with weapons and armies or horses and charioteers, but by my power as the Lord their God. After Gomer had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, she again became pregnant and gave birth to a second son. And the Lord said, name him Lo-Ami, which means not my people. For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. But yet, verse 10, the time will come when Israel's people will be like the sands of the seashore. There will be too many to count. And then, at the place where they were told, you are not my people, it will be said, you are children of the living God. And then the people of Judah and Israel will unite together and they will choose one leader for themselves and they will return from exile together. What a day that will be, the day of Jezreel, which means to scatter, when God will again plant his people in his land. In that day, you will call your brothers Ami, my people, and you will call your sisters Ruhamah, the ones I love. We're going to read a little bit more in chapter 2, so if you'd skip down to... Uh, verse 21 in chapter 2. God's continuing this promise. He says, In that day I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the sky as it pleads for clouds, and the sky will answer the rain, will answer the earth with rain, and then the earth will answer the thirsty cries of the grain, the grapevines, and the olive trees, and they in turn will answer Jezreel. God plants. And at that time I will plant a crop of Israelites, and I will raise them for myself. I will show love to those that I called not loved. And to those that I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people. And they will reply, you are our God. 
Now, a couple things you'll notice right off the top is the flip-flop. You notice how God comes out of the gates really strong. You are not my people. I will scatter you. You're, you will not receive my love and my mercy. And then all of a sudden he goes, but never mind. Israel's like the sands of the seashore. And, and where once you were not loved, now you'll be loved. Where once you were not my people, now you'll be my people. And the big question that I have to ask there is like, what's going on? <laughs> Why does that happen? Is this the rash, hot, unpredictable God? Or is there something more here? <clears throat> Two things I want to point out is number one, recognizing that God's default is to move toward his people in order to transform and heal. That is his default. Number two, we don't yet have an explanation, but this is meant to ask or to make us go, tell me more. Why, God? What happens between these two sections? Tell me more behind the scenes. So, uh, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just look at and explain what, are, what do those names and some of those messages mean. And what, you'll see there's two, there's two sections. There's the consequence and the promise. So we're just going to work our way through those. So first, we're going to look at the consequence and Jezreel. Uh, this is probably the most complicated because this is using the most insider history. Uh, so important things to know about Jezreel is it's a Hebrew word that's playing on the name of a place. There was a valley, a place called the Valley of Jezreel. And Jezreel in Hebrew means to scatter. And God can use it, meaning to, I will scatter you, I will smash you, I will destroy you, right? You will have no leadership. So that's how God's using it in the first sentence. He's saying, just like the Valley of Jezreel, because of what happened in the Valley of Jezreel, I will scatter you. Now, what happened there? You can actually read that story in 2 Kings chapter 9 and 10, but here's a real quick summary. Uh, this was when uh, Israel was um, living underneath an idolatrous king as well as queen. There was a man named Ahab who was king and his wife Jezebel who was queen. And they, uh, Jezebel was actually a cult priestess. Uh, they were leading the whole nation into idolatry and sin. And so God anoints Jehu, as an upcoming king. And he basically asks Jehu to kill Ahab and Jezebel, their peers and their descendants. He says, Israel's being led by a wicked man and wife and they need to be removed. And Jehu is a bit of a paradox because uh, in 2 Kings, God anoints him and says, Jehu, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and kill them. And it's really blunt and honest and he does it. And at the end of that, he's told, you did well. And most of us look at that and be like, wow, isn't the Old Testament confusing? Maybe I'm going to go like, read something else. Um, <clears throat> but what's going on here is there's a, a question of here in Hosea that's actually telling us, what does God actually think? Does, is God happy with this? Or does God have deeper feelings about what's going on? Uh, here in Hosea, it's set up as a bad thing. And here's why. 2 Kings chapter 10 ends like this. It says that Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel, Baal being a fake um, idol. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which made Israel sin. That is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in carrying out what's right in my eyes, meaning you've removed these unethical idolatrous leaders, You've done to the house of Ahab according to what was in my heart. Your sons, the fourth generation, will sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu is not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all of his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. Here's what's going on. At multiple points in scripture, God calls wicked people his servants. 
And we look at that and go like, what? Wicked people as servants? What happens is God uses evil people to punish evil people. And he says, I'm using you for my specific purpose. It doesn't mean I get entirely behind what you've done or how you've done it. In fact, Jehu goes on kind of this bloodbath where he murders several hundred people. All of them were idolatrous and unethical. Many of them were priests of Baal, this um, evil spiritual being. But what God is doing is he's using Jehu to eradicate this spiritual evil. And then the way that Jehu goes about doing that is full of bloodlust and hypocrisy. And so God says, you've done what I've asked you to do. I'm going to let you reign for four generations, but ultimately this is just more evil. And because of your bloodlust and your hypocrisy, I will destroy you. I will scatter you in the valley of Jezreel. So um, that's the first child, which is, like I said, the most complicated. There's two more, quite a bit faster. Uh, The second child is lo ami, which here in the New Living Translation is translated not loved. The ESV translated as no mercy. Here, it's helpful to realize that God is speaking about immediate consequences. This, he's not speaking about his long-term plans and purposes. What he's saying is that right now, Israel, your land is full of hypocrisy and evil, and because of that, you will be punished. I will not have mercy on you in the short term. Assyria is going to come and conquer you. I will not have mercy and stop that because you've continued in your hypocrisy and your evil. So I will not have mercy. I will let Assyria come in. And it's important here that we're understanding this is not God's default state of mind. His much bigger picture is what? To take people who had no mercy and to give them mercy. To take people that were not his children and make them his children. So it's important to realize this is not his long-term intention. This is an immediate course of action in history that he's allowing. The third child, lo ruhamah, which means not my people. Now, Hosea's third child seems to be a byproduct of his wife's infidelity. And so... Lo Ruhamah is literally not Hosea's child. On the surface, this just seems to be like the fact. Like, you're not my kid. Now, in the same way, God is using this as a message to Israel because in this time period, Israel is not looking or acting like God's children. They look like a child of the nations around them. And so God is, on the surface, just factually saying, You don't look like me at all. You don't look like my offspring. You don't look like my family. You look like all the people around you. Now, in all three of these, here's what's happening. And this is hard, but God's speaking truthfully. What God is doing is he is maturely upholding boundaries. He's speaking boldly to evil. emotionally hot would say, I know you're wrong, but let me blah, blah, blah. Forget about that. Let me come in and just fix this, right? What God is doing is he's saying, you're your own person. I'm my own person. And we need to have a conversation. The reality is you don't look like me at all right now. And what God's actually doing in that is he's leaning into relationship because if he didn't care, he would just do this. God is saying, I'm hurt. You don't look like me, but I'm leaning into relationship and honesty. I'm expressing the reality of, I'm expressing myself honestly. What is this reality? Because he's wanting to rewrite this family story. And he does. He shifts in chapter one as well as two, and he uh, changes all their names. And they are beautiful if you look at them. The first one, Jezreel. 
like I said, Jezreel means to scatter. And in the first use, God was using it, meaning I will scatter you, I will destroy you. And the second uh, use that God's using is it actually means to plant. If you think of a, a farmer who would scatter seeds, God's saying, I will scatter you in rich, fertile soil. I will plant you in my land and my presence and you will grow strong. You will thrive because you've been planted by God. They're planted in a new relationship of God's faithfulness and love. And he changes the name of Lo-Ami to Ami. And this is, God is saying, you who did not deserve patience or love or mercy, I will now gift you love. I will now give you undeserving presence and faithfulness. And Lo-Ruhamah, that was not my people, those who were literally born out of wedlock and idolatry. God is saying, I will make you my own. I will redeem you. I will give you a new identity, not as an outsider, not as a child born by someone else, but as my very own. I will make you my own. And chapter two ends by saying that all of these people, those who used to be unfaithful, those who were not God's people, those who were not receiving his mercy will now cry together, you are our God. And God again is demonstrating his ability to speak honestly in all of this. He's able to speak honestly of the consequence and the evil that his people are participating in, but he's also able to speak honestly of his desires for restoration, his desires for healing, his desires for love and loyalty. And because he's doing all of this, I would argue that he's trustworthy. As I see it, if God is unable to be honest about sin and evil, he's unpredictable and untrustworthy. But if he's able to be fair and honest and blunt at times, that actually makes him more reliable and more trustworthy because you know he means what he says. So when he says, I'm frustrated, you know it's what he means. When he says, I long to restore you, you know that that's what he means because he's honest and he says what he means. He is trustworthy. Now, I want to do just one really quick aside, which came to my mind and I think is helpful. Isn't it mean? that God takes three relatively innocent children and names them destroy, no love, and not my people. Isn't that just like cruel? On the surface, it sure feels like it. And as I've been thinking about this, um, you guys know I'm a new father. I've got a little baby boy who's four months old and, and I've been thinking about this. Uh, my son's name is Obadiah, which means servant or worshiper of the Lord. And I've been thinking, what will those conversations look like when I sit down at night laying in Obadiah's bed and I say, do you know what your name means? It means worshiper of the Lord. Can I tell you about how good he is? Can I tell you about how much he loves you and how he knit you together in, in your mother's womb? And his name is this love letter to God in our family. And so I've been thinking, what, what would I do if I was in that same bed, right, with three little kids being like, all right, good night, not loved. Good night, destroy. And, and here's, this is my own imagination, so take this with a grain of salt. But here's a way that I've thought about that potentially going. Good night, not loved. Good night, not, not, not my people. Do you guys know what your name means? Or maybe even them asking, Daddy, what does my name mean? Why do you name me this? It's like, well, honey, Israel's been in a really hard spot for a couple of years and, and God's using our whole family. He asked me to be a prophet for him and he's using our whole family to tell Israel how much he loves them and how, how hurt he is by the fact that they're living in evil, right? You know, when you go out to school, like there's all this stuff going on in the world and it's hurtful and, and wrong. 
God's hurt by that too. And so he's using our little family and, and your name is not loved because he wants Israel to know that like right now they're gonna have some hard consequences. And in fact, he's actually, you know, Jezreel, he's gonna have to, like some people are gonna be punished. But can I tell you about God's promises? Can, like low on me, right? Do you know what? God's using our whole family dynamic to tell Israel how much he loves them and what his promise is for them in the future. And your name one day is not gonna be not loved. He's actually using you to tell the whole world how much mercy and love he has for them. And you, Jezreel, right, your name is not gonna be destroyed. Your name is actually gonna be planted in the presence of God. That's the, that's the destiny that he has for our family, is not one of consequence, but one of promise, because that's what Hosea is. The message of Hosea is not one of punishment, but one of promise. And that's how, as I think about God's message to these children, through these children, that's the heart as I see it here in Hosea. And I hope that is a helpful image because the big question of all of this is what is motivating God? Is he motivating, is he motivated by rashness and unpredictable naming of children with mean things or is he motivated by a consistent yearning loyalty and love? And what we see by God naming children something of consequence but promising them restoration is his motivation is to say, I will love you and I will redeem a really terrible situation. That is his motivation. And to put a little bit more detail on that, to give us a glimpse behind the curtain of God's mind and heart, we're going to transition to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, God continues to express to us his mind and his heart in human terms. And here he continues to speak of himself as a father. And we're going to read the whole of chapter 11 here, but I'm going to do a little different. Rather than reading the whole thing, we're actually going to go block by block and try to explain it as we go. You ready? This is Hosea chapter 11. God says this, when Israel was a child, I loved him and I called my son out of Egypt. He's beckoning us back to the history of the Exodus. I called my son out of Egypt, but the more I called to him, the farther he moved away from me, offering sacrifices to the image of Baal and burning incense to idols. I myself taught Israel how to walk, leading him along by the hand, but he doesn't know or even care that it was I who took care of him. I led Israel along with my ropes of kindness and love. I lifted the yoke from his neck and I myself stooped to feed him. Pause right there. What God's saying in this short section is he's pointing out that Israel's rejection of him comes after he's been taking care of them for hundreds of years. And he uses the metaphor of a toddling child. Many of us in this room are parents. And you can look back at the many years you've spent with your kids, all the nights you've tucked them into bed, all the nights you've walked with them as they stumbled away along, all the, all the days that you've taught them how to speak and, and write and ride a bicycle. That's the image that God's hearkening us to. He's saying, this is, this is my history. I've taken care of you since the day you were born. And, but as you're growing up into an adolescent, you've rejected me. And many of us here have adolescent or grown children and you know what that season is like. like kid, don't you even realize I changed your diapers? <laughs> Do you know how much I love you? Will you just listen to me for a second? I, I've been there your whole life and now you think you know it all and you're walking away and, and, and walking into destruction. 
How many of you as parents, or, or maybe you've seen this in your cousins or siblings, you've seen an adolescent or young adult child leave the love of their family and end up in the destruction of their own decisions. And that's the heartache that God is describing. He's saying, but my love for you is still that of the child because I have all those memories. I have all those diaper changes, all those toddling things. That's how I view you. You're my kid. How could I ever turn my back on you? Now, we're going to continue. He continues by saying this in verse 5. He says, but since my people refuse to return to me, they'll return to Egypt and they'll be forced to serve Assyria. War will swirl through their cities. Their enemies will crash through the gates. They will destroy them, trapping them in their own evil plans because my people are determined to desert me. They call me the most high, but they don't truly honor me. And here God is speaking as a loving father. His yearning for them does not go away, but like a father with a wandering child, he's saying, you're gonna make your own consequences. You're, you're courting relational disaster with Egypt and Assyria, and that's going to lead to destruction. And every chapter in Hosea has actually included Israel and Egypt up to this point because these have been the places of, of refuge for Israel over the course of their idolatry. Is rather than loving and trusting God in that relationship, they place their security and their hope in the political alliances around them, even while those political alliances are unethical and idolatrous. And so last week, like we saw, there's a faithfulness issue going on here. Israel's placing their desires over their love of God in the same way that a teenager puts their desires and needs over the love and the guidance of their parents. That's the imagery that God's pointing out here. But like a parent, God's watching these decisions blow up. He's watching them make a wreck of their life. All the while, he's calling to them. Honey, don't you know what's going to happen here? Like, this is what, like, it hurts me to watch you like this. Would you come home? Would you please stop? He's calling out to them to guard them from their own misplaced desires. Now, God continues in verse 8. He says this, and he's navigating his own emotions here. He says, how can I give you up, Israel? How can I let you go? How can I destroy you like Adma or de demolish you like Zeboim? Those are two cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, my heart, it's torn within me. My compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. I will not completely destroy Israel, for I am God and not a mere mortal. I am the Holy One living among you, and I will not come to destroy. And this is, this is the, the big peak behind the curtain in much of Hosea. The peak behind the curtain where he's saying, I'm not just, I'm not a machine here, you guys. I'm not just calculating, what have you done wrong? What's the consequence? What have you done wrong? What's the grace? He's saying, what am I going to do with you? You are my little baby boy. You're off the deep end, but I still know who you are. I still love you with the irrevocable love of a father. What am I supposed to do? You're wrong. I know it. You know it. But I love you and I'm loyal to you. What am I supposed to do? I'm angry. I need you to know I'm angry. But I, my compassion stirs within me. I'm going to come after you, my people. I'm going to move towards you with love rather than fierce anger. And we see that God is moving towards his people in a way that's trustworthy. Because if he failed to say anything about their evil and their idolatry, that would be untrustworthy. He's being honest here. He's saying, I love you like a child. 
and I'm really angry, but my compassion stirs within me. He wants us to know that he ha is compassionate, that he's thinking through this. And there's, there's one question, especially for the skeptics in the room who are going to say, well, hang on, are you saying that God doesn't know what to do? Isn't God omniscient? Isn't God sovereign? Like, absolutely, right? I already said we can hold 100% firm to those truths. God is omniscient, God is sovereign, and we can honor the way he lets us peek behind the curtain to understand his world. So the wrong conclusion here, when he says, how can I give you up? What am I supposed to do? The wrong conclusion is, oh, well, God doesn't know what he's doing. <laughs> the right conclusion is that God is saying something to the effect of, it's hard to love someone and be loyal to them when they're unfaithful. And I'm divided. I feel anger about that, and I feel love and loyalty. He's asking us to understand his world. And he's sharing, I would say, he's sharing his inner thoughts so that we understand and trust him. Now, he, let's go on to um, close this section. In verse 10, he says this, For someday the people will follow me, and I, the Lord, will roar like a lion. And when I roar, my people will return, trembling from the west. Like a flock of birds, they will come from Egypt. Trembling like doves, they will return from Assyria, and I will bring them home again, says the Lord. I see that God again ends on hope of healing and restoration. He's saying the result of me leaning in with honesty, sharing my inner self, sharing my anger and my compassion, the end result of that will be healing and restoration. If we're peeking behind the curtain of his mind, he's saying that he's looking forward to and yearning for the day when his people will follow him. He will initiate that call with the strength of a lion and his people will respond from all over the world. They will come home and be planted and united with their God. And this is ultimately a forward-looking prophecy that we've not yet experienced 100%. This is a forward-looking prophecy that says there will be a new heaven and a new earth where God will unify his people underneath him, planted 100% in his presence. But it's also a call for us to begin yearning for the same, right? It's a call for us to come home, a call for us to be faithful, to hear his heart and lean in because he is trustworthy. His heart is not to give up on his people. Now, as we're concluding, I just want to ask the question, why does all this emphasis on God's emotional world matter? Because how we engage with God is entirely dependent on if we trust him. And we will not trust him if we don't know him. If we continue to mistrust him, we will stay distant. We will hide ourselves from him. We will participate in all the religious motions, but we will never know him intimately. And so when we hear his sharing of himself and realize he is trustworthy, he is consistent, he is loyal, now we begin to trust him. And we begin to trust the way he does things and, and the emotional thermostat, so to speak, of how he's doing this. Because if I have the wrong understanding of his emotional thermostat, then when he says he's angry, I interpret that as run, right? But because I understand him, that he's independent and honest and loyal and fair, when he says he's angry, it moves me toward him with honesty. It moves me toward understanding him. When he 
says he's hurt, I lean in and I listen and I respond with faithfulness. And again, my default, my default is the cooler side of the thermometer. So my default is to do this with God. My default is to keep him at a distance. But as I bump into him and his faithfulness and his emotional thermostat, it resets mine. Because now I hear him as he is and I don't need to do this. I begin to trust him and that when he leans in, it's for healing and restoration. So I'm drawn towards confession. I'm drawn towards repentance. I'm wooed by his love and his mercy because it's trustworthy and true. And I want to bring us back to the gospel as presented in chapter one. The reason that he's trustworthy is because of the good news present in the naming of the children. The honest and fair truth about our world right now is we, by default, are not his people. We do not deserve mercy. We do not deserve, we, we deserve to be scattered. That is the default of the gospel, is that all are sinners and we deserve the wrath of God. And so that, that means that <clears throat> that is our default. My default name is Jezreel. My default name is Lo Ami. My default name is Lo Ruhamah. Not loved, not mercy, right? not God's people. But the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that God moves toward us, towards restoration and healing. And he says, I don't like the fact that this is your name. I want to rename you. You who do not deserve my grace, who do not deserve my mercy, let me tell you a story of a, a man named Jesus who took your Jezreel, your punishment, and now offers you to be planted in God's presence. Let me tell you about Jesus who took your not my people title and now gives you the new title, son and daughter of God. Let me tell you about Jesus who took the, the no mercy that you deserved and gives you the new name of loved and mercy. Again, Jesus, or excuse me, God asks in chapter 11, verse eight, he says, how can I give you up, O Israel? How can I let you go? My heart is torn within me. My compassion overflows. No, I will not unleash my fierce anger. This is the good news of Hosea as applied to us here in the New Testament era is that through Jesus, we who deserve to be scattered, deserved no mercy, deserve to be enemies, we are now renamed and re-identified. We are God's children. We have received mercy. We have received love. And we can receive this message because we trust his heart is compassion. He is leaning towards us for hope and restoration and compassion. And I can accept all of this because I trust him. I've peeked behind the curtain. I know what he's thinking and feeling. I know he's leaning in for the sake of restoration. And so I can trust the gift that he's given us in Jesus. Now, this week was the why. Why does God move towards his people? It's because he loves them the same way a father loves his child. Next week, we're going to look at the how. How does Hosea move towards his wife who's living unfaithfully? How does God move towards his people who've been unfaithful to make a way back home? Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you that we can trust you. Uh, by knowing the contents of your heart and by knowing your fairness. I thank you that your go-to is not to withdraw and to leave us, but your go-to is, is faithfulness. Like the song we sang earlier, great is your faithfulness. Your mercy is more. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. This is your default 
the contents of your heart is that you can contain wrath and anger at evil and yet be stirred to compassion, to lean into relationship, to share all this with us so we know your heart fully. Father, would you help us to trust you and to lean into relationship with you in response? Amen.